Chapter Six of The Burglar and the Blizzard by Alice Dewar Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the kitchen, McVeigh made it evident that his talents were for organization rather than for hard labor. He drew a chair near the wall and, tilting back at his ease, watched Geoffrey and Cecilia at work. Geoffrey engaged in lighting the rage fire looked up at her as she moved about filling the kettle and washing out pots and pans and thought that he and she represented the aspect of a young couple of the labouring class with no further ambition than to keep a roof over their heads he almost had it in his heart to wish that they were she proved herself infinitely more capable than the two men had been discovering tins of butter and soup and sardines a package of hominy apples and potatoes in the cellar and an old box of wedding cake which was a burning brandy sauce she declared would serve very well for plum pudding manual labor was such a novelty to geoffrey that he soon forgot even his irritation against mcveigh and the triangular intercourse was more friendly than before until marred by an unfortunate incident he was standing in the middle of the kitchen with a steaming pot in each hand when mcveigh without warning advanced toward him handkerchief in hand exclaiming my dear fellow such a smut on your forehead pray allow me look out roared geoffrey realizing how easily in another second his revolver might be taken from him the tone was alarming, and McVeigh sprang back ten feet. I was afraid of burning you with the soup, Geoffrey explained politely. I own you made me jump, said McVeigh. The girl said nothing, and Geoffrey feared the incident had made an unfortunate impression on her. It appeared to be completely forgotten, however, when they presently sat down to their Christmas dinner, of which they all expressed themselves as inordinately proud there was canned soup and sardines and toasted biscuits canned corned beef potatoes and fried hominy bacon and potato salad a bottle of champagne and finally the wedding cake now to say that by the time dessert was put on table mcveigh was drunk would be to do him a gross injustice all the more genial side of this nature however was distinctly emphasized the better part of a quart of champagne had not produced any signs of intoxication his eye was clear his speech perfect and he was more than usually aware of his own powers confident of appreciation as he finished his share of cake he rose to his feet and leaning the tips of his fingers on the table addressed geoffrey my dear holland he said i will not wish you a merry christmas for it has already been as merry as it has laid within my poor capacity to make it let me however express my own gratitude to you for this delightful occasion you have referred to the fair as meagre to our position as constrained but believe me i am not exaggerating when i say that i so little agree with you that i am confident that during many of the remaining years of my life i shall look back to this christmas as one of unusual luxury and freedom 
it is perhaps the warm glow of friendship that gilds all small discomforts for in situations like ours characters are tested and yours holland he paused impressively has stood the test geoffrey bowed gratefully and mcveigh continued i have here a slight token in honour of the day it is of little pecuniary value but between us holland pecuniary value is no longer mentioned i feel that it will be recommended to you more than mere worth could recommend it by the fact that it is peculiarly my own my own as few human possessions can be said to be i offer it he said drawing from his pocket a square flat little package was best wishes for a happy new year the idea that mcveigh was going to give him a present had never crossed geoffrey's mind and now it struck him as so characteristic so perfectly in keeping with mcveigh's consuming desire to triumph in minor matters that he was able to smile pleasantly and receive it appropriately he exchanged a glance of real appreciation with the donor and received a grave bow in return cecilia smiled too i don't know exactly why you should think mr holland wants your picture billy she said it may be of the greatest service to him said mcveigh the girl turned to geoffrey i can't make a speech like billy's she said but i have a small present for you which i hope you won't despise because it is not new i mean i have worn it myself for some time and i hope you will now in remembrance of the time when you sheltered the houseless she held out on her pink palm a flat gold pencil with a single topaz set in the top the thing was of some value and geoffrey looking up caught mcveigh's eye in which danced such a delicious merriment that geoffrey's half-formed question was answered mcveigh was undergoing such paroxysms of delight at the idea that geoffrey was about to become a receiver of stolen goods that he could not well conceal it and instinctively geoffrey drew back his hand the next moment he realized that he must at once accept the gift with decent gratitude whatever he might choose to do with it afterward but unfortunately the girl had noticed his hesitation she said nothing whatsoever but she closed her hand on the pencil rose from the table and left them to dispose of the remains of the feast as best as they could mcveigh as if he had observed nothing threw himself at once into the part of a waiter tucked a napkin around his waist flung another over his arm and began to clear the table wait a moment said geoffrey who had not followed his example i have something to say to you i see you are in possession of my sentiments in regard to your sister i think her a wonder that's all it is necessarily for you to know quite naturally holland she is she is i won't discuss that with you the point is that you seem to be under the impression that this will do you some good well it won't you stand there where you did before you go to jail when the snow melts then i settle my affairs mcveigh's face fell really holland he said i don't see how if you are fond of a woman you can want 
to spare her such a brother as you. Think it over. There are worse brothers than I, replied McVeigh. How many men would have sacrificed what I have sacrificed in order to keep her comfortably? Not many, I hope. She is extraordinarily fond of me. Perhaps, you see, she has not anyone else to be fond of. We can scarcely say that now, returned McVeigh encouragingly. I won't discuss it with you. You can't mean to tell me that you are in love with my sister and mean to send me to state's prison. I mean exactly that. Why, she would never forgive you. Geoffrey thought this so probable that he had no answer to give, and presently McVeigh, who had been grumbling over the matter to himself, asked, Are you serious, Holland? What do you suppose I am? Geoffrey roared, and McVeigh, shaking his head, went on with the work of clearing the table. He was very silent and abstracted, and for the first time seemed to realize his own position. When they had put away the last plate, Geoffrey said, Now come to the library. I'm going to give you a pipe. Confound you. A pipe? Why? Because I want to give your sister something, and I think she would be more apt to take it. I'm afraid she is rather offended by the way you treated her little gift. As a matter of fact, I was the person to be offended, for I had given her the pencil, a pretty little thing, singularly like one which you may have seen Mrs. Don't tell me where you took it from. I don't want to know. Come and get your pipe and mind you are grateful. A pipe, observed McVeigh thoughtfully. I think I will take that large meerschaum on the mantelpiece. Geoffrey laughed. I don't think you won't. He answered, The best pipe I own. No, indeed, you will take a horrid little one that won't draw. It will be just the thing for you. No, said McVeigh. No, you must give me the big one. Otherwise, I shall make it appear that you promised the other one to me and turned mean at the last moment. And I can do that, Holland. His little eyes gleamed at the thought. I shall say, my dear fellow, I'm glad you changed your mind about the Mersham. It was, as you say, too handsome for a man in my position. That will make her mad, if anything will. You know, she's not quite satisfied with the way you treat me as it is. This was quite true, and Geoffrey, remembering that the object of the gift was to please the girl, reluctantly agreed to part with his favorite pipe. The affair went off well. McVeigh affected to hesitate over accepting so handsome an offering, and Geoffrey pressed it upon him with a good grace. As far as his present to the girl was concerned, he found himself less and less willing to make it in McVeigh's presence, and more and more unable to think of any way of getting rid of him except murder or the cedar closet. His anxiety was rendered more acute by the fact that once or twice he could not help suspecting that Cecilia, in spite of her anger, would have been glad of a few words alone with him also. Before very long she suggested that McVeigh should take her hat and coat upstairs for her. "'Certainly I will,' cried Billy, springing up with alacrity, and was at the door before Holland's warning shout, "'McVeigh!' stopped him. Let me take it up for your sister, 
he said warningly. Oh, not at all. Let me, replied McVeigh courteously. Couldn't hear of it, returned Geoffrey. By this time they were both outside of the door, and Geoffrey closed it with a snap. You would, would you? he said angrily. Now, Holland, said McVeigh, as one who intends to introduce reason into an irrational confusion, this is exactly a case in point. I am, by nature, a gallant man. I forgot all about your instructions. I wonder, said Geoffrey. It was instinctive to do my sister the little favor she asked. Yes, and I doubt if I should have acted differently if your pistol had been at my head. She asked me. That was enough. I have warned you once. Holland, I think you will excuse my telling you that you have a very unfortunate manner at times. They went upstairs together and were descending when Geoffrey stopped with his eyes on the grand piano which stood in the hall below them. Can you play? he said. McVeigh brightened at once. He had been looking a little glum since his last speech. Yes, he answered. I can. Well, I'm not a professional, you understand. But for an amateur, I am supposed to have as much technique and a good deal more sentiment than most. I don't care how you play, said Holland. There is a piano. Sit down and play, and don't stop. No, Holland, no, said the other with unusual firmness. That I will not do. No artist would. Ask anyone. It is impossible to play in public without practice. I have not touched the instrument for over a year. You can do all the practicing you like here and now. You can play finger exercises for all I care. All I insist is that you should make a noise so that I will know you are there. Well, said McVeigh, yielding, you must remember to make allowances. Not the best musician could sit down after a year. However, I dare say it will come back to me quicker than to most people. You must make allowances for my lack of practice. There is only one thing I won't make allowances for and that is your moving from that music stool. He opened the piano, and McVeigh sat down, waving his fingers to loosen the joints. He sat with his head on one side, as if waiting to discover which of the great composers was about to inspire him. Then he dropped lightly upon the notes, lifting his chin, as if surprised to find that an air of Schubert's was growing under his fingers. Geoffrey was astonished to find that he really was, as he said, something of an artist. He waited until he was fairly started and then returned to the library. Is that Billy? said the girl. It must be great pleasure to him to have a piano again. He's so fond of music. He was not as eager to play as I to have him, said Geoffrey. He came back quietly and stood looking down at her for a moment. Then he said, stretching out his hand, I want my Christmas present. I have none to give you. You had. I have changed my mind. Why? For the first time she looked at him. Mr. Holland, she said, you must think me singularly unobservant. Do you suppose I don't see that you dislike my brother? You refused the pencil. You did refuse it plainly enough, because Billy had given it to me. 
I will not offer it to you again. I know that Billy sometimes does rub people up the wrong way, but I should think anyone of any discernment could see that his faults are only faults of manner. She said this almost appealingly, and Geoffrey, unable to agree, turned with something like a gorn, and resting his elbows on the mantelpiece, covered his face with his hands. Do you suppose that he does not see how you feel toward him? Are you by any chance assuming that he bears with your manner on account of his own comfort? You might at least be generous or acute enough to see that it is only for my sake that he exercises so much self-control. He does not want to make my position here more unendurable by quarreling with you. It makes me furious to see what you force him to put up with. The way you speak to him and look at him as if he were your slave or a disobedient dog. His self-control is wonderful. I admire him more than I can say. And is my self-control nothing? He asked, without moving his hands from his face. Yours? I don't see any exercise of yours. Circumstances have put us at your mercy. You are rich and fortunate, and as insolent as you choose to be. Self-control? I don't see any evidence of it. No, he said, turning, looked at her with a violence that might have set her on the right track. Under his eyes she looked down and probably in the instant forgot all that she had been saying and feeling, for when he added, I love you, her hands moved toward his, and she made no resistance when he took her in his arms. End of chapter 6